You're listening to What Does the Word Say, a series of podcasts on biblical theology produced by Grace and Glory Media. My name is Mark Roby, and I'm your host for this series. Our teacher is Dr. Richard Spencer. We're resuming our study of biblical theology today by continuing to examine the nature of true, saving faith. In our last session, Dr. Spencer argued that Christianity is not a self-help program and, in fact, is not primarily focused on improving this life, but instead places its emphasis squarely on eternity, the life to come. He then explained the double imputation, wherein our sins are imputed to Christ and His perfect righteousness is imputed to us. And then we briefly discussed the doctrine of union with Christ. Dr. Spencer, you finished last session by arguing that a true Christian, that is, someone who is united by faith to Jesus Christ, will live an obedient life. What else should we know about living in union with Christ? The most important thing we need is a proper understanding of the relationship. The modern church loves to talk about Jesus as being my friend or my big brother or my helper or my guide or my example, all of which are true in some measure. But the one thing the modern church avoids like the plague is the most important thing that must be said about my relationship with Jesus Christ. He is my Lord. Many modern Christians have been raised with the idea that I can have Jesus as my Savior, but that submitting to him as Lord is an optional step. I'm well aware of that idea, but it could not possibly be more contrary to what the Bible teaches. As we saw last time with the story about the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, The Bible does say that if we believe in Jesus Christ, we will be saved. But as I endeavored to show last time, you have to flesh out what it means to believe in Jesus. You must believe in the true Jesus, not some counterfeit. And the true Jesus is the sovereign Lord of the universe, whether we acknowledge that fact or not. And this is a critical point. Our confessing Jesus as Lord does not affect reality one way or the other. He is Lord. So if you look at Romans 10.9, for example, you get a slightly fuller picture of what it means to believe in Jesus. That verse says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I find it interesting that this verse doesn't just say you must believe in the resurrection. It says you must believe in your heart. I think that's an important point. Now, when Paul talks about our heart, he doesn't mean our emotions or something that is somehow opposed to our intellect, nor does he mean mere intellectual assent to some Bible truths. In the Bible, the word heart refers to the totality of the person, that which constitutes the very core of our being. Our heart includes our mind, our will, and our affections. And saving faith, that faith which unites us to Jesus Christ, is only found in a heart that God has made good by the miracle of regeneration. Such a person is the one whom Paul is talking about when he says, believe in your heart, and such faith will produce a changed life. But I want to focus on the first part of Paul's statement. He said that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. This gives us a bit more information than we were given in the account of the Philippian jailer. Although I'm confident that the Philippian jailer was also told about the lordship of Jesus Christ. Oh, I'm quite certain that you're right. In fact, going back to Acts 16 for just a moment, right after the jailer was told to believe in Jesus Christ to be saved, we read in verse 32, Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. 
And we should ask ourselves, what was this word of the Lord that Paul and Silas spoke? I'm sure it included the fact that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all and that he demands obedience. Look at the Great Commission in Matthew 28. In verses 18 to 20, Christ told his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So I'm confident that this was part of the word of the Lord that was spoken to the jailer's household. All right. We don't call other people Lord in America, and although the title is still used in England, I think it would be good to explain what it means for Jesus to be called Lord. Let's go back to Romans 10.9, where we're told that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. The Greek word translated as Lord in that sentence is kurios. This word has different meanings. It can, for example, be translated as sir or master, as it is many times in the New Testament. In that sense, it's simply a title of honor. But it can also mean far, far more. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that was in use at the time of Jesus, uses the word kurios to translate the Hebrew name for God, usually pronounced Jehovah or Yahweh. And there are several places in the New Testament when an Old Testament reference to Jehovah is clearly applied to Jesus Christ. For example, in the passage we're looking at in Romans chapter 10, a few verses after being told that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, you will be saved, we read in verse 13 that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a quote from the Old Testament prophet Joel. And if you look at Joel 2.32, you will see that the word Lord is in all capital letters, which means it is the Hebrew word Jehovah, as we noted in session 6. So this passage in Romans tells us that Jesus Christ is God. He is Lord in the sense of being the sovereign Lord of all creation. And of course, Romans 10.13 is not the only New Testament reference to equate Jesus Christ with the Old Testament Jehovah. We could also cite Hebrews 1 verse 10 and 1 Peter 2 verse 3 and 1 Peter 3 verse 15. That's right. We could go on and make a much more lengthy argument to prove that Jesus Christ is God and We will do that in a later podcast, but right now I want to go back to considering what it means for him to be Lord. And the point I'm making is that we need to take the word Lord in the highest possible sense when we use it to refer to Christ. It makes me think of the passage in Philippians 2, verse 8 through 11, where we read, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. And every knee certainly will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We can either confess now and be saved, or we can confess later and be damned. But everyone will confess. And all of this will redound to the glory of God the Father. Absolutely. We could also cite Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, where we're told that in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, 
sustaining all things by his powerful word, end quote. We see that the universe was made through Jesus Christ and that he sustains it. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. In other words, he's God. When the people saw the man Jesus Christ, they were seeing the exact representation of God in human form. John says the same thing in John chapter 1, verse 18, where we read, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Now notice that God, the one and only, is at the Father's side. This is a clear statement that both Jesus and the Father are God, two persons of the Holy Trinity. So when we declare Jesus is Lord, we're simply acknowledging the fact that he is God, the creator and sustainer of everything. Absolutely. And he will be the judge of everything as well. He came the first time to bring salvation, but we're told in Acts 10 verse 42 that he is also the one who will judge both the living and the dead. Therefore, when we say Jesus is Lord, there should be some trembling. I'm afraid the modern church has lost its fear of God, which is to say that it's lost true Christianity. We are told in Proverbs 9.10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And in Romans chapter 3, where Paul gives a terrible list of the sins of men, he ends by saying in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes, which is a summary statement that explains all of the sins and is itself a horrible sin. It is unbelief. Right after Moses gave the people the Ten Commandments, they were terrified because of the thunder and lightning and smoke on Mount Sinai. And Moses said to them in Exodus 20, 20, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you, so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Fear can be a good thing. Fear is often a very good thing. Fear is physical harm, of course, keeps us from many stupid mistakes in this world. But most importantly, the fear of God will keep us from sinning. As has been said many times, we would live differently if God were visibly standing next to us all the time. And yet we need to remember that God is with us at all times. Yes, he is, and it's a very good thing to keep in mind. But this all comes back to realizing that he is Lord. I am but a sinful creature. He is my creator. As we said back in session two, the creator-creature distinction is central to the message of the Bible. And yet this idea of coming into the presence of a holy, omnipotent, omniscient, absolutely just God is completely absent from most modern churches. When I travel and visit other churches, I'm careful to look online and try to find a church that appears to be faithful to the Bible, but I'm often appalled at the casual manner of most of the people who come to church. They don't act or dress any differently than they might to go out to a Starbucks for a cup of coffee on a Saturday morning. And yet here they are, supposedly coming into the presence of God Almighty to worship Him. Yeah, I've had the same sad experience. I'm sure they would dress and act differently if they were going to see some important person here on earth. I'm sure they would. So we've made the point that true Christians must understand that their confession includes the statement, Jesus is Lord, and they must know how serious that is. Yeah, that's, that's a critical point. It isn't just that we believe in him as a good moral teacher or example of self-sacrifice. It must be that we come to him as our Lord. And that means that we are his blood-bought slaves. Slave is a term loaded with all sorts of negative connotations. And for good reason, given human history. But it's a term that the Bible uses unashamedly. Paul begins the book of Romans by introducing himself, saying in the Greek, Paulos doulos Christu Jesu 
which means Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. And that same expression is used elsewhere as well. In fact, Paul argues quite forcefully and quite clearly in Romans chapter 6 and elsewhere that everyone is a slave. The only question is, who is your master? In Romans 6 verse 16, he wrote, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. I'm quite confident that many, if not most of our listeners, will object that they are not slaves to anyone or anything. I'm sure that you're right, but what does it mean to be a slave? It means that you have no freedom. You're bound to someone or something as your master. And if someone is outside of Jesus Christ, meaning simply that he has not been born again and has not confessed Jesus as Lord, that person has a sinful nature handed down to him. And we are all slaves to our nature. We cannot choose to do that which we do not in any sense want to do. We will discuss human free will in a later podcast, but it's important to note that we do not have absolute freedom. There's the obvious fact that we're not free to do things we're not physically capable of, but it's equally true that we're not free, unless we are forced, to choose things that are completely inconsistent with our nature. As a rather silly example, I would never choose a cup of coffee because I hate coffee. And a sinner hates God, so he will never choose to obey God, which means that everything he does is sin. Even when an external action is in agreement with God's law, an unbeliever's motive is wrong, and so it is still sin. And there's a Latin phrase that theologians use for this condition. It is non posse non peccare, which means not able to not sin. And that is the condition of anyone who has not confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and who is, in other words, outside of Christ. He can only sin. And it is in that sense that we can say he is a slave to sin. I dare say that most people have a hard time swallowing that idea. I know I had a hard time, so I'm sure you're right. But part of the problem is our definition of sin. We tend to look at gross external sins against other people, for example, murder or rape or stealing or something along those lines. And most of us can say that we've never done these things, so we tend not to think of ourselves as sinners. But as we said in session 10, sin is properly defined by question 14 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism as any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And his law requires, as just one perfectly sufficient example, that I love the Lord God with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength. So we all stand condemned of not having kept God's law. All right, but what about a Christian? We still sin, and I don't think any of us can say that we keep God's law perfectly at any time, especially when I consider the command you just mentioned, to love God with my whole being. So in what sense can we be considered to be slaves to righteousness, as Paul calls us in Romans 6? I certainly agree that none of us keeps God's law perfectly. He has not chosen to remove sin from us, so we still struggle with our sinful nature. There's a battle going on inside every Christian. There is a desire and an ability to obey God, but there's also a sinful nature still resident, and it wars against us. So we're slaves of Christ, but we are not yet perfected. God has begun a good work in us, and we can be confident, as Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, that God will complete that work. But in the meantime, we struggle. There's a Latin phrase for our condition, too. It is posse non peccare, meaning simply that it is possible to not sin. 
And there's another Latin phrase that describes this internal conflict. We are simul justus et peccator, which means simultaneously just and sinner. We are just in God's sight because we're united to Christ by faith, but we still have a sinful nature within us. Faith is called by the Reformers the instrumental cause of our justification, which is one of the five causes that Aristotle listed for any effect. The instrumental cause is the means or the instrument through which an effect is brought about. The example is often used of a statue, in which case the chisel is the instrumental cause. So to answer your question, I think there are two ways in which we can be considered to be righteous. First and most importantly, we are perfectly righteous in union with Jesus Christ. His righteousness has been imputed to us. But secondarily, there is also an imperfect but improving practical righteousness of our own. All right. I think I can summarize what we've said so far by saying that a true Christian acknowledges Jesus Christ as Lord both with his mouth and, albeit imperfectly, with his life. Well said. And as I said, that is the most important point in living out our lives in union with Christ. He is our Lord. But there is more because we're also given the ability to obey. I argued a few minutes ago that an unbeliever is not able to obey God, which is true. But the ability to obey is itself a gift. It isn't something that we conjure up. It is the result of our being born again and of God's grace working in our lives. Well, that should serve as a good teaser for our next session because we're out of time for today. You've been listening to What Does the Word Say? Brought to you by Grace and Glory Media, and I'm Mark Roby. In our next session, Dr. Spencer will continue examining the nature of true, saving faith. We hope you'll join us. The session you heard today is available, along with all other sessions, in the archive on our website at whatdoesthewordsay.org. We also have a free book available to you entitled Good News for All People, written by Rev. P.G. Matthew, founder and senior minister of Grace Valley Christian Center. To request your free copy of this excellent summary on the biblical message of salvation, go to whatdoesthewordsay.org.